Good morning and welcome to this next episode of 49 Plus Location, Oxywoods Company, Ziggy Time, let me check 7.31 Friday morning, the 5th of March So, happy birthday Jake First of all, I must remember to message him today Maybe even call him Carl is on the way, hopefully it should arrive by today. Um, so it's Jake's birthday today, Jake being my nephew, for anybody listening to this who isn't in the family, on the off chances, off chance, I'm just trying to sort out around my ear, this arrangement, I just realised I put the earphones in as I'm listening to something, but of course I'm not going to listen to anything, maybe it just gives the impression to other people who may be around that I may actually be speaking to somebody. And not just to myself, uh, but it does mean that something kind of sticks out on the right-hand side. So you'll have to forgive me as I just do a bit of faffing. I'm hoping that's kind of all right. Hat back on. Get some gloves on. It's a cold morning, a nice cold morning. A nice cold, ice-cold milk. So what wasn't it? Nice cold, ice cold milk. Was it ice cold, nice cold? It'll be ni- it'll be nice, wouldn't it? Nice cold, ice cold milk. Back in the day, when they used to just advertise milk, I don't think any particular. There's no kind of branding going on there. I don't think. I think it was just milk. Um, uh, and also back in the day when um, then another advert would have been. <coughs> oh, I have to wait now. Man, man's about to walk past, so I'm going to have to wait to do this one. Morning. Um, it is indeed morning. We've both correctly identified the time of day. Aren't we clever? It would take too much time to say good morning. Now, I don't know where Ziggy's gone. Oh, here he is. Um, so, nice cold, ice cold milk. Um, yes, the advert where um, Ian Rush drinks milk. Something like that, isn't that right? My dad says, if I don't drink loads of milk like Ian Rush, I'll only be good enough to play for Achington Stanley. Who are they? Exactly. Something like that. And I'm sure that's another advert just simply for milk. Uh, and also back in the day when... I'm not sure what's now got... Is it... The, the, what's it called now? They see the ca- ca- Caribou Cup? So I believe it's the, the League Cup, as it once was football trophy and then for some years probably the 1980s it would have been it was the milk cup so obviously you know the sponsor at that time was simply milk obviously not the sponsor itself but uh, the milk milk industry the milk federation whatever they're called are they still going but yes over the years that particular trophy has been the league cup initially um the milk cup Caribou Cup, Rumbelow's Cup, I think at one point, wasn't it? <laughs> Rumbelow's, are they still going? <sighs> you still have to get your TVs from Rumbelow's, didn't you? Back in the day. It's all back in the day these days. Um, and the day today being another television programme. Was it the day today? Yes, the day today was the TV programme, and then prior to that was to On the Hour. This is basically where Alan Partridge was originated. Um, right, so today is Friday, so to say 5th of March, so we're heading into the weekend. And in fact, today, in theory, then, should be the last day 
of, let's use the phrase, homeschooling. Um, because the school's going back next week. On Monday, that said, I think Fred actually has maybe a lateral flow test on Monday or Tuesday. And therefore, all being well, we'll go back on Wednesday. I believe Connie is due to go back on Monday. So today's the last official day of homeschooling. Which actually, recently, has been Rachel doing it. But you know, I set aside a little bit of time today, so a little bit more. And we say that, even Connie says, oh, it's the last day. She says, well, it might be the last day. <laughs> it may all come back. We have to do it all again, which is also obviously quite true. Let's hope we are past the need to another lockdown. But who knows? It all depends, doesn't it, as they start to open things back up again. Uh, given that the children aren't getting vaccines, so I'm not sure what's massively changed since when they are closing the schools, or rather closing it so that only key workers going in. Um, because go back in again, are we not like to see infection rates going up? Is not are we seeing enough changes in the virus? I don't think we are. If anything, variants happening. So it will be easy, it will be interesting to see as things ease how this does have an impact upon the intention. And of course, whilst they have said data, not dates, they've also put out dates to say, well, you know, people now working with the idea of twenty first of June being when. The majority, if not all, restrictions being eased. But it all depends on the data. So I suppose to some extent it really depends on the success of the vaccines, which are, they keep talking about it being a very successful vaccination programme. Um, so they're all rolling out. But you say there's no children aren't having vaccines, vaccinations. Um, and I'm not sure if that's ever likely to be the case, unless they are developing a version which they've tested and is indeed safe. So I'll be interested to see what happens in the next few weeks and how they manage that. Um, so we shall see. So yeah, today being the final day of that, so that'll be a change next week. I mean, less. No, actually, you know, it's, not, it's been not so bad recently. And as I say, I say homeschooling. Have to remind ourselves of the phrase, which I suspect I'd have said on here at some point. A good few weeks ago, when I was getting quite stressed by it all. Had a very able um, education expert. Let's call her that. I call her Liz for that's her name. Reminding me, saying, "Well, not really homeschooling, is it? It's uh, you're attempting to educate from home whilst you're attempting to work from home during a global pandemic. That's not homeschooling. Homeschooling is a choice. So that was a reminder that you, you do your best." And I was getting all quite stressed at all, trying to, trying to, you know, and it was, you know, didn't, wasn't really helpful, um, and important for us all to be able to let things go. Uh, which I think is generally a good bit of advice. The more we can let go. So one question is, what can I let go of today? Question to always ask ourselves. So I have let go of at least one. So one thing today. So I think picking up from the last episode, there was some mention of autism. So I'm back in that space. I've been reading a bit more about. Autism, particularly a, a certain chapter from a particular person's thesis. I'll call that person Ruth, for that's her name. Um, so not read it all the way through, but getting you know, getting to grips with it again. In fact, realising that a version of this writing had we'd you know commented on actually over three years ago. It shows you how these things develop over time. That in that time, it's quite possible this bit of writing was taken out of the thesis to say, well, that's not going to sit there. Wasn't sure where it was going to go. 
the current latest sort of version is maybe suggesting this could be a chapter two. So after the first chapter of introducing the thesis, actually, so relatively light, and maybe introducing the, the general issue, you know, the general challenges, then that second chapter is focusing on, well, well okay, what, what do we already seem to, in quotes, know or theorise, or what's the, the, the apparent level of understanding of autism at the moment? It does seem to be, you know, there are obviously a range of theories, no one's really sure what's going on, some competing theories, and that's what this chapter is endeavouring to sort out. So that's kind of, that was quite interesting. I'll tell you one thing that was interesting, I need to look his name up again actually. Um, I think I mentioned it on the one yesterday. So Grunya, and it's a Russian surname, I think it's G-R-U-N, basically if you go to the, the, the uh, um, if you, yeah it was on, it was on Hans Asperger's um, Wikipedia page, so Asperger, obviously, name now synonymous with Asperger syndrome. Although interestingly, he didn't name it that. It seems to be Lorna Wing in the 1980s, sort of resurrected interest in Asperger's early work on uh, effectively autism or autistic traits or characteristics amongst boys that seem to indicate something that now we would describe as being autism. Around the same time as Leo Kanner. Um, so in that, so in the work, yeah. So Asperger syndrome seemed to be kind of been coined as a phrase in the 1980s, with the work of Lorna Wing and no doubt colleagues. Um, and then even since then, in the last however many years, probably last five, ten years, and check on that, um, in things like you know Asperger syndrome, which would have appeared, I believe, in the Diagnostic and Statistical Manual of is it called? Dis- disease and disorders, not sure what the full name is, but it's usually referred to as the DSM. It has re- been revised ever so often, so I think in the fourth version of that, Asperger's syndrome would have been listed as a a diagnosis. Uh, so that's now been changed, I believe, not having looked at the DSM itself, but what I'm picking up and what I'm remembering and what I'm interpreting is that's now been dropped because now it is autistic spectrum disorder, so part of the work of Wing and others have A, returned this idea of, well, Asperger may have been highlighting, I'm going to use the phrase, mild forms of autism. I'm not sure if mild is the appropriate term. There's a lot of issues in terms of, I think, language when we talk about autism. No one's really clear best way to 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 describe certain things, partly because no one really knows for sure what it is. They have a basic understanding. Um, I'll see, now I'm going to get some anger from dogs because Zig isn't going to want to play. Let's see how it goes now. Come on, Ziggy! Sorry. Come on, Zig. Ziggy, come on. Oh, he will, he will come. Ziggy, look! Look what I've got! That's it. Ziggy, look! Come here! Look, look Ziggy! Um, I don't know why that is. Why don't you let that fucking dog play? I don't know, they just... It's all right, mate. Um, okay. <coughs> coughing, coughing. Um, so, autism. Canna, Leo Canna, Hans Asperger. Asperger syndrome. Autism spectrum disorder. 
Um, yeah, so Asperger's was between, you know, a certain subtype of autism. So now the the discourse is generally around autism spectrum disorder. So this idea that you could put these things on a spectrum, so people talk about being on the spectrum. So a diagnosis would put you somewhere on the spectrum. I'm not quite sure exactly, you know, what the description end up would be. Um, so we're into that space of diagnosis, how one diagnoses autism, and one might argue, if one chose to, of whether or not how appropriate it is a to diagnose the methods of diagnosis, because I think, again, lay opinion, folks, not basing this on anything other than by intuitive thoughts and observations, thank you very much, that the issue with diagnosis can be such that um, the usual way in which things are diagnosed is you have X number of symptoms that are regarded as being part of a, a syndrome or a disorder or whatever disease, and if you display X number of those symptoms, then a diagnosis is given. Does that make sense? So let's say there are 10 kind of symptoms or 10 aspects or whatever. I'm using the word, going to keep, stick with the word symptoms that you can observe and display and see that, okay, we think all of these are indications of an underlying disease, disorder, syndrome, whatever you want to call it, whatever the right terminology might be. Again, I am not a medical practitioner. Never have been, never will be. Thank you very much for asking. Um, but you would use these symptoms and then, I believe, because I know this is the case with definitely some um, yeah, psych- psychiatric type ones, psychological disorders, such as depression and anxiety and so on, they'll be diagnosed in a similar way. So for a diagnosis to be such, then you hit certain criteria and you hit enough of them, then a diagnosis is given, my understanding, and therefore treated accordingly. So one important aspect of diagnosis is subsequent treatment. If you have a certain diagnosis, then it says that, okay, well, if that's diagnosed, then it suggests you treat it in this way. Um, and again, the moment, you see, the difficulty with autism is this idea of, well, to what extent is it, you know, something like a disorder or disease or whatever term? To what extent is it an it, as in a particular something? Um, and again... Related questions are things like, so assuming it is something we can define as saying, okay, this is something we'll call autism. I think this idea of saying autism, autism spectrum is that there are a range of uh, phenomena that means that you know you may be sitting somewhere on a spectrum, which kind of makes a certain amount of sense to me at least. Um, and, um, yes, on the basis of that, you would treat accordingly. And by treatment, this is the idea again, I think even historically, this might be some treatments may have include, can it be something that can be cured? So again, some, some of the early work suggests this is something disease-like. Then you treat it in some way, maybe to either make it better. Is it 
something else, and that's where I can like that messy space of understanding better what is going on. My point I was going to make before, which why I kind of got I distracted myself as I do, is this Grunya who are now it's terrible. I don't even remember her surname. Partly because it's Russian. Um, I'm actually going to stop for a second to have a little look on the Wikipedia, just so I can appropriately get the surname. I think it's only fair, because this isn't what's interesting about it, is Leo Kanner, well-known name, has been someone who first identified what is subsequently called autism, as has Asperger, and indeed his name been associated for a while with Asperger syndrome, as though it's kind of a certain type. I'm going now to find internet page. I'm going to have a look up. Let's look up Hans Asperger because I know it's on his page. So it's full name Johann Friedrich Karl Asperger. However, if I go down a little bit, there was something in there. I've got to go into career maybe. Leo Kanner. Yes, the interesting link between the two is, um, so, Asperger was based during the Second World War in Yugoslavia, but then he went to open a school for children, I'm assuming this was in Yugoslavia. So then the important one, no, it must be in Australia, because it says, George Frankel was Asperger's chief diagnostician. Di- George Frankel, I'm assuming, probably not related to Victor Frankel, but who knows, maybe it's a relatively common name, was Asperger's chief di- diagnostis- diagnostician, diagnostician, until he moved from Austria to America and was hired by Leo Kanner in 1937. So that's one interesting link. George Frankel links the two together. The one I'm actually trying to remind us of is Asperger published a definition of autistic psychopathy in 1944. This is all according to Wikipedia. That resembled the definition published earlier by a Russian neurologist named Grunya Sukareva in 1926. In fact, that's a link to her own page. There she is. So Grunya Sukareva... Soviet child psychiatrist, when she died, she was from 1891 up to 1981. So there you go, she was the first to publish a detailed description of autistic symptoms in 1925. But interestingly, the original paper was in Russian, and published in German a year later. It was Sula Wolf, translated in 1996 for the English-speaking world. So... I do find it interesting, so in fact, Grunya Sukareva seems to be the first person on record to have described this, uh, but it didn't seem, you know, interesting to know how much that, you know, influenced at least Kanna and Asperger. Did they know about that? Or maybe if not, it was in Russian, they couldn't speak Russian. Did independently they describe something? So that was quite interesting. So Grunya Sukareva. Um, so I may need to pause a moment because the message has come through, interestingly. Um, okay, yeah, so some thoughts about what we will do today. Um, so I may pause anyway to have a little think about stuff, although maybe I'll do it on recording. Um, yeah, so that's interesting. Good news to Kareva. 
is one name we should want to return to. And then the other person I've been reading a bit more about this morning, because in Ruth's chapter, not surprisingly, we move on to at some point talking about the work of, amongst others, a certain Professor Simon Baron Cohen. And in fact, as of three months, two months ago, as of January of this year, he was made a knight of the realm. So Professor Sir Simon Baron Cohen who is currently, and has been for a number of years, the director of the Autism Research Centre at the University of Cambridge. Um, and I have actually met... Um, I have met uh, Professor Simon Baron Cohen. Not sure if back then he was. So back in the day. He won't remember me, of course. Oh, no, 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 no. Um, but the context was, and I'll just re- relay this story before pausing... Uh, or maybe ending. How long, how long have we been recording for? Is this enough uh, to be an episode in its own right? Let's have a little look. Depends how long the story is. Yeah, absolutely could be. Um, yes, this, at least I t- if I tell this story, then it gets to explain the title of the episode, which I hadn't decided what it was going to be until I just thought of that. So you're now wondering, how is this all going to link together? Um, so this particular... <laughs> At time I met was during, um, I think actually on another recent episode, I think the Woodpecker one, I mentioned Megalab, the very first Megalab back in the day, let's say 1994, um, with Sir Richard Wiseman. He's not a knight yet, but come on, give it time. He's Professor. Um, Sir Richard, I was working with back in the day, the mid 90s, with whom I did my PhD. and Richard had been involved with Megalab, the, f- the first one, and subsequently, possibly all of the ones that followed. Excuse me, so I'm not quite sure how many Megalabs were run, but it was some of the earlier, in the mid-90s anyway, mass, public, sort of psychology-type experiments. Tomorrow's World, at the time, was very keen, so the BBC generally, to do these kind of public understanding of science type experiments so we did the truth test one so see the early episode about <laughs> it's actually bizarrely called why do woodpeckers peck wood um <laughs> that was the title of that episode but this particular one where i met lord cohen no lord professor baron cohen king sir baron cohen so so professor simon let's call him simon that's his name isn't it i don't oh gnomes that see but he's very much known as baron cohen because that's that's a baron, isn't it? He's baroness. Baron and baron. Baron Hardup. What's that from? Baron Hardup. Um, <laughs> I'm just distract myself with whatever jumps into my head. Um, so Simon Baron Cohen, I met at one of these tomorrow, Tomorrow's World Mega Labs. It was probably about the third or the fourth one, and I can't even remember the specific. I'm pretty sure it wasn't that first one. I'm pretty sure it was a later one. And I can't remember what the particular experiment or study that Richard had proposed that I was there involved in helping with. I'm pretty sure it wasn't the first one. But in a subsequent one, one of the um, experiments was looking at how people might detect emotion just from the eyes. So this would have been Simon Baron Cohen's experiment on that because... If one looks through his immense body of research, um, he has looked at those kind of things. The extent to which we can uh, infer, perhaps, emotion on another, another person simply from in their eyes. So, we, you know, you can convey emotion just by 
looks in the eyes. That's the idea. And I'm sure in the experiment there, I need to look at this, there was a bit where you're showing this actor's eyes and people were asked to either indicate is this person's happy, sad, smiling, something like that, angry, whatever it might have been. Um, and it was Baron Cohen's experiment, Simon Baron Cohen's experiment. So he was there in the lab, to, in the lab, in the in the studio to kind of talk about it. Um, so I met him very briefly. Um, but the interesting story that links the title of this episode is the fact that um, the actor who was being used <laughs> to play this particular part in the experiment on television, so they recorded a little kind of interlude, little episode, little scene with an actor to, 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 to use this, um, was an actor whose name I don't know, we can find that out, but he appeared in a drama of that time, a BBC drama, under the name of Martin Chuzzlewit. So... Um, so it shows you that if I hadn't chosen that in the title of this episode, you'd have gone, where's that name come from? But now, throughout this episode, you've been wondering, when oh when is he going to talk about Martin Chuzzlewit? Uh, so, <laughs> that's what I remember. So I'm not sure if this actor played Martin Chuzzlewit in the BBC drama around the same time, or he simply appeared in it. But that was the actor that was used. It was his eyes that were being used. And and both Richard and I remember at the time, and now still I was remembering it this morning, hence me sort of returning to it now, because I obviously thought about this Megalab stuff and meeting Simon Baron Cohen and so on. Um, and um, so, yes, we remember being in, let's call it the green room, so some room in the BBC, off-air, would have been the green room, with other people in there, including a science journalist... Um, who we'll call Roger, because that's his name, it's Roger Highfield, who at the time was the sort of science editor at the Daily Telegraph. He, I don't think he says anymore, he's gone to write a number of science books, a lot of kind of, so he's very interested in sort of in popularising and public understanding of science type stuff. So Richard would continue to be a probably good friend of Roger Highfield's and, and probably would have met actually on the, I think probably through the very first Megalab Truth Test, which involved the Daily Telegraph, that's probably where he met all those years ago. So talking about nearly 30 years ago. Um, but this particular occasion, Roger Highfield is on the phone to, we're guessing, his editor to kind of explain the experiment, had to write about it. And he's obviously told the editor that this actor happens to be, whatever his name is, who played or was in Martin Chuzzlewit. So that was kind of explained just who he was. <laughs> And then it's obviously quite clear there was some discussion going on where the editor didn't really understand the nature of this experiment and and kind of who the actor was and, and basically probably what did Martin Chuzzlewit have to do with it? <laughs> and he was simply trying to explain, well, that's who the actor was. He happened, happened to have played in a recent drama by that name. So there was a lot of discussion going on to which Roger Highfield was getting quite irate, saying basically again and again to his editor on the phone... <laughs> Forget Martin Chuzzlewit. <laughs> just forget Martin Chuzzlewit. <laughs> it's confusing you. I can just imagine the editor of the side going, so where does Martin Chuzzlewit come into it? No, forget Martin Chuzzlewit. So that little phrase now is just still brings back, as you can tell, laughter. And at some point, as I next speak to Rich, I must say, forget Martin Chuzzlewit. Um, it was funny. 
And there you go. There hence explains the title of the episode. It broadly all relates to autism and Simon Baron Cohen, um, which I've been reading more about this morning. So he is, I don't I think at the time even, so we're talking over 20 odd years ago, I believe it says, it says on one of his websites that well, when he went to um, uh, Cambridge 25 years ago, there was no autism research. So I think at the time he wasn't even at Cambridge. I think he might have still been at UCL or... Um, yeah, I think he'd been at Cambridge originally, then went to UCL, maybe somewhere else, back to Cambridge, and that's where he's been for the last 25 years. Autism Research Centre seems to be well established, and it seems to be, at the time of recording, making a case for an autism centre of excellence at Cambridge. So basically taking the Autism Research Centre and developing it as a new building, lots of funding, and it being a much bigger enterprise where it's a kind of one-stop shop not a phrase they use not only for kind of key research in this area but clinical expertise help for people because a big part of um what they're trying to claim that you know to do lots more support and help for um families and people with autism and so on and i'm still kind of interestingly kind of exploring the idea of you know on in their discourse they talk about people with autism um, and to what extent is it, do you use that phraseology as opposed to autistic people? And does it really matter? Does it? Does that use of language have an impact? And yada yada you. So anyway, that's where we're at. So I kind of got that far in, in the reading of the chapter. There's more. I mean, the other big, so one big theory of Simon Baron Cohen's here is this idea of empathy versus, uh, empathising versus systemising. Suggesting that people with autism would tend to be, you know, maybe highly engaged on the systemising element, dimension, and lower on empathising, whereas, you know, so-called normality, let's use that term, but, um, you know, they'd be balanced, and generally something, well, actually, you find sex differences, so males will tend to be, on average, generally speaking, you know, typically you make large-scale comparisons between males and females, generally finding that, uh, again, supposedly, the evidence would suggest, not looked at it, but the theory was, and I'm guessing he's presenting some evidence to support that, that males would tend to score higher on systemising versus empathising the other way around for females, and therefore that's why one of his books, I think, or one of the ways of describing this is, basically what you're seeing in autistic people, ah, so that phrase, people with autism, is effectively what you might describe as an extreme male brain, high systemising, low empathising. That's part of the theory then I was reading about in, in, in Ruth's chapter this morning. Um, yeah, I think that basically will do me for now. That will do us. So that's kind of where we're at. So I think it's interesting. And I need to understand all this because then a massive major contribution of Ruth's thesis is going to be a new theory, which is calling autism development theory. Um, and it's trying to get my head around all of this stuff, because as I say, I'm not an autism researcher. We were involved to look at the positive psychology side of this, as in, once you know, there wasn't an initial intention to, I think, develop a theory, but the argument being is if we better understand what autism might be, then we may be able to make the case for, or Ruth may be able to make the case for, how certain elements of positive psychology could be really beneficial in any intervention to help people with autism and their families. 
which is also one of the general aims of the Autism Research Centre, is to say, well, and subsequently, Autism Centre for Excellence is and better understanding the causes of autism, what it is, what, what brings it, it about, what, you know, exactly what it is and what it brings it about, and importantly then, ways of you know, helping to improve health and well-being. So we're all for that. So I do think there's some links that could be made with the ARC, um, because I think there's something very interesting going on here that would be nice to get better understand. So with that in mind, I shall leave you, and whatever you do, make sure you forget Martin Chuzzlewit. Just forget Martin Chuzzlewit, okay? Bye!